Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Today's podcast is also sponsored by StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you share stories and memories. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift that you'll both cherish for years. StoryWorth and save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash gold. When they rang the opening bell on Friday, a lot of people on Wall Street were hoping that the Dow Jones was going to break a three-week losing streak. But it didn't turn out that way because when they rang the closing bell, the Dow had plunged 981 points, more than wiping out all of the gains from the first four days of the week. In fact, in the closing minute, the Dow hit its intraday low of down 1,019 points. Points. Now, the catalyst for the sell off, and it really began yesterday, it was a two day decline, and it followed comments made by Fed Chair Powell that he made during a roundtable discussion at the IMF. He was at this table with four other prominent women in central banking, including ECB President Christine Lagarde. Now, most of the other people on the panel seem to be the most concerned about climate change, but Powell kept his comments focused on the economy, on inflation. And, you know, when I first started listening to this panel, the host made it clear that she felt very honored to be in the presence of these giant minds of economics and that they were going to impart their wisdom on the rest of us. And in reality, if you want to know anything about what's going to happen in the economy, the last people that you would ask are the heads of these central banks, especially the chairman of the Fed or the president of the European Central Bank. These are politicians disguised as economists or bankers. They're either incompetent or liars. So either way, you're never going to get a valid answer because either they're not competent enough to know the right answer, or if they are, 
they're not honest enough to share it with you. So if you want to have a roundtable to find out what's going to happen in the economy, you need to invite people who actually have an understanding of the economy and who are willing to speak the truth rather than spread government propaganda. But I want to focus on the comments made by Powell and kind of ignore what everybody else said. And one of the things that Powell said at the very beginning, he tried to describe where we are in the economy. So he started out by talking about how great the economy was before the pandemic. We had this economic boom, the Trump economy. He didn't mention Trump, but he talked about how we had this great economy. We didn't have a great economy. We had a great bubble, a gigantic bubble. That's what we had. Then Powell said the pandemic came along and just screwed up this great economy. No, the pandemic maybe pricked the bubble, but it also exposed the underlying weaknesses in the economy. Because had we truly had a strong economy, we could have weathered the pandemic to a much greater degree than we did. And of course, we would have weathered it even better had we not had the horrific government response to the pandemic. But of course, Powell had a completely different take because then he talked about the remarkable response, the fiscal and monetary response that in Powell's words were remarkable. It wasn't remarkable. It was the worst possible response you could have made. It sowed the seeds for the inflation that we're experiencing now, but more important, the even greater inflation that we've yet to experience, but that we will experience. Powell still believes that everything he did as Fed chairman, everything Trump did, and then Obama as president, everything Congress did, he thinks it was all remarkable. It wasn't remarkable. It was a disaster. Well, then he talked about the great recovery that we had as a result of this remarkable policy. We didn't have a great recovery. We never recovered at all. We got even sicker. It's just that Powell didn't know that. All we did is spend the money that the Fed printed and we're experiencing the consequences. Then, of course, Powell mentioned inflation as if inflation just came around out of nowhere and just rained on the parade. Like, what do you know? Things were going great. And then out of left field, something that nobody expected, just all of a sudden we had inflation. Like nothing that we could have done about it, totally out of our control, just a bunch of dumb luck. Everything was going great. We had this remarkable policy and then out of nowhere comes inflation. And now we got a war. That's the cherry on top or not the cherry, the opposite of a cherry. And so Powell made it out like everything was great. And then all of a sudden we had inflation and a war. And so now we've got this big problem. But of course he fails to acknowledge or accept any responsibility for having created the problem. But what became a big problem for the market is then Powell basically said that a 50 basis point rate hike was definitely on the table for the May meeting. And he talked about front loading the rate hikes. He said it would be appropriate to front load these rate hikes because we need to get up to neutral quicker. And so we want to do more earlier. And that's what really scared the markets both Thursday and Friday. Now, of course, all this is a bunch of nonsense. Everybody wants to point to the rhetoric of Powell and some other FOMC members. They're all saying we got to get to neutral quicker. We got to front load the rate hikes. Everybody says we've got this hawkish Fed that's really aggressive. 
They're not aggressive. They're not hawkish. If they really were aggressive and hawkish, they wouldn't just be talking about rate hikes. They would have already hiked rates by way more than 25 basis points. They wouldn't be talking about shrinking the balance sheet in the future. They would have already shrunk it substantially in the past. So this is not a hawkish Fed. These are a bunch of chicken hawks. They're doves in hawk clothing. But even the clothing that they put on is not really hawkish because what they're talking about is not going to do anything about the inflation problem. They're acting as if they can bring interest rates back to levels that they had them at when there was no inflation to fight. How are you going to fight inflation with the same interest rates that you used when you had no inflation? In fact, you were worried about an absence of inflation. One of the questions, though, that might have spooked the markets was about the stock market. Powell was actually asked if he wanted the stock market to be lower or if he needed the stock market to be lower because he spoke about the need to tighten financial conditions and that may also include stocks. So when he was given that question, he didn't come out and say, yes, we want the stock market to go lower, but he didn't deny that. He didn't say, oh, no, no, we don't want the stock market to go down. He didn't say that at all. He kind of sidestepped the question, but he kind of left open the possibility that the Fed didn't care, that it was perfectly fine with the stock market going down. I mean, remember when the stock market kind of started to decline in the fourth quarter of 2018, and also there was data that showed that the economy was slowing, but the Fed kind of ignored that and continued to posture as if it was going to keep raising interest rates and keep shrinking its balance sheet, the market then crashed. We had this collapse in December of 2018, and then the Fed did an about-face. The Fed immediately stopped hiking rates and then went into what it billed as a mid-course correction, started cutting rates. It called off quantitative tightening before ultimately returning to QE following the pandemic, but the Fed did do a policy U-turn based on the stock market. Well, that's exactly what's happening today. The Fed is continuing to talk tough about hiking rates, even in the face of signs that the economy is in fact slowing and the market has already rolled over, yet the Fed continues to talk tough, which should be a very dangerous proposition for the markets. Now, of course, if we do get a stock market crash, which to me looks more and more likely with each passing day, well, we'll see how tough the Fed continues to talk in the aftermath of that crash. But one of the reasons that the Fed is so confident now that it can keep hiking rates is because it thinks we have such a great economy. Powell again reiterated how strong our economy was, particularly the labor market. He described the labor market as hot. We had this hot labor market, and he then said it was very good for workers. The labor market is not good for workers at all. It actually stinks for workers. And that's because wages are, in fact, going up, but they're going up much more slowly than the cost of living. Consumer prices are rising faster than the wages of the consumers who have to buy stuff. And that's especially true if you don't go by the CPI, even if you do accept the government's 8.5% increase in consumer prices. That's still greater than maybe a 5% increase in wages, 
but the real increase in consumer prices is closer to 20%. So wages are in fact collapsing. They're collapsing at an unprecedented rate. So if you have real wages collapsing, how is this a great market for workers? This is a lousy market for workers. The Fed doesn't get that, just like it doesn't get the fact that this is not a strong economy. This is a bubble. This is an economy that has never been more dependent on artificially low interest rates, QE, 0% interest rates. This economy has a greater addiction to monetary heroin than any prior economy that the Fed created. And obviously, if they ease back on the dosage, we're gonna have the mother of all withdrawals. This is gonna be much worse than what we had in any other period. And the Fed is clueless to the degree to which the bubble economy depends on the drugs that it's been injecting. And in fact, look at the numbers we got today from the Gap. The Gap reported a disappointing quarter. Stock plunged about 20%, down now over 70% from its high. And if you listen to the explanation as to why sales were falling at the Gap, it's because Gap customers just don't have enough money left over to go shopping and buy clothing after they finish paying higher rent, higher costs for food, higher utilities or gas or insurance or all the necessities of life that are going up so rapidly, so much more rapidly than their meager pay increases, they just don't have any money left over. I mean, Americans were living paycheck to paycheck before inflation eviscerated those paychecks. And now that their paychecks are so much smaller, despite these nominal increases, they're having to cut back on discretionary items like buying clothes at the Gap and the stock is plunging as a result. This is exactly what I've been saying was going to happen, that for all the talk about retail sales going up, it's the grocery store, it's the gas station. That's where sales are going up. And it's not because Americans are eating more food or buying more gas. They're just paying more money for the food and the gas they buy. But because they pay more money for gas and food, they have less money available for clothes and a lot of other things. So. This is not a great economy for workers. It is a lousy economy for workers. In fact, one of the very reasons that the unemployment rate is low is because inflation is so high that it's effectively dramatically lowering the minimum wage. You gotta realize that when you have a minimum wage of 7.25 an hour and you create 20% inflation, you've basically cut the minimum wage by 20%. And so what happens when wages go down. The demand for labor goes up. So because the minimum wage has effectively been lowered by inflation, it's not as big a barrier to employment. In fact, there are a lot of people today who were legally unemployable a year ago because of the minimum wage. Their productivity is now high enough given the reduced minimum wage that it makes viable economic sense for somebody to hire them. So that is what's going on. We are reducing the minimum wage. And as long as the minimum wage isn't increased, it's gonna drop dramatically over the next several years. And that's gonna bring a whole new group of people into the labor force because now it's legal to hire them because businesses are gonna be able to raise their prices. But if they're still able to hire workers at 7.25 an hour, well, those workers may then contribute enough productivity to justify them being hired. Now, of course, at some point, politicians are going to cram through an increase in the minimum wage and we're going to lose some of that benefit. In fact, 
One of the reasons that so many people think there is some kind of trade-off between inflation and unemployment is simply because inflation does reduce wages. And if you have a minimum wage law and inflation can lower that minimum wage, well, you get an increase in employment. It's not inflation creating jobs. It's inflation lowering the minimum wage. It's the minimum wage that was destroying jobs. And by destroying the value of the minimum wage, you allow those jobs to come back into existence. In my career as a financial advisor, I've often come across people who have made the mistake of buying a whole life insurance policy when what they really needed was term. Term life is the best life insurance because it allows you to maximize your death benefit yet minimize the cost of coverage, freeing up money that will make investments that should far outperform the small returns offered through whole life policies. I think one of the reasons so many people make the mistake of buying whole life is because those policies are often the most lucrative for the people who sell them and not the best choice for the people who buy them. That's where Ladder comes in. Ladder sells term life insurance and it's 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a telephone, a laptop, and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And there are no hidden fees and you can cancel anytime. If you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to cross that off your list. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. But the most significant question that Powell was asked is the one that he did not answer. And this is the question that says it all. And nobody was talking about this except for me, which is why the most important source of news when it comes to the Fed is my podcast. Forget about the coverage in the mainstream media. Just listen to what I've got to say, because my take is the right take. So Powell was asked a very good question, the best question of the day. And I don't know that I have it word for word, but it was something like this. If the economy starts to slow materially, will you stop tightening even if inflation is still above your target? See, that's the $64 trillion question. That is the question that nobody wants to ask, let alone answer. But somehow the question got asked and that really threw Powell for a loop because he knows he can't answer that question either because he doesn't know the answer or he's afraid to admit the answer. So what did he do? He completely dodged the question. Now he answered it, but he didn't answer the question. He answered a question that wasn't even asked. He began his answer by saying, you asked about a soft landing. And then he starts to talk about how the Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing. But she didn't ask about a soft landing. She didn't say anything about a soft landing. What's obvious to me is Powell gets this question that either he can't or he won't answer. And so he has to think of something to say. And clearly before this round table, Powell rehearsed. He probably wrote down a bunch of answers to questions that he thought he might get asked. And he kind of memorized these canned responses so he could kind of recite them when they were needed. 
And so he gets this question and he's like, oh my God, I can't answer that. And so he starts thinking through the Rolodex of his mind. He's looking at these cards and he pulls out the soft landing question and he just kind of recites the answer to that. He doesn't even bother to edit the answer by at least changing the beginning because why state you asked about a soft landing when she didn't even ask about it? I mean, start talking about it, but maybe start a little bit later. No, he just kind of read it verbatim like Ron Burgundy is reading the cue cards exactly as he sees them so Pal is kind of reading this cue card in his mind exactly the way he originally wrote it and the reason I know that Pal does this is he admitted it I talked about this on an earlier podcast he was giving his congressional testimony and he was asked about the state of the union which was the night before And Powell said, well, I didn't watch it because I had to prepare for this testimony. Now, if I was going to testify before Congress, and I've done it twice, I wouldn't have to prepare anything. I would just show up and I would answer their questions. Why? Well, because I know my subject matter and I'm going to be honest. So I don't have to prepare to answer questions honestly. Just whatever questions you want to ask me, I'm just going to give you an honest answer. I don't need any preparation. But the reason Powell needs preparation is he has to try to figure out in advance what questions are going to be asked and then come up with a plausible lie. And then he's got to get his lies straight so he doesn't contradict himself. Because when you're telling the truth, you never contradict yourself. But when you're telling lies, you can contradict yourself all the time. So you got to be careful. Now, another reason that Powell may need to prepare is he really doesn't understand the subject. I mean, I totally understand everything I talk about, so I don't need to prepare. But I mean, who knows what Powell actually knows about economics? He might not know anything about economics. So he has to just memorize. I mean, for all I know, he's got crib notes there up his sleeve. Or maybe he wrote some of the answers on the palm of his hand. I got to watch closely at some of these things to see if he's cheating. But the point is, he knew that he couldn't answer this question. Now, why not? Because there's two possible answers. Let me go back and repeat the question. It was, If the economy starts to slow materially, will you stop tightening even if inflation is above your target? Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, let's say Powell answers that question. No, we're not going to stop tightening. If the economy is weakening significantly, but inflation is still above our target, we're going to ignore the weakness in the economy and we're going to continue to fight inflation. If Powell said that, well, the stock market would totally crash. I mean, it would just knock the legs completely out from under it. He can't say that. He can't admit that he's going to tighten into a bear market. So he didn't want to say that. On the other hand, the other answer is, well, yes, if the market slows materially, even if inflation is still above our target, well, we're going to ignore inflation and we're going to go and rescue the economy and we're going to start stimulating again, even if inflation is still high. He can't say that because that'll crash the dollar. That might even crash the long end of the bond market. Gold will go ballistic if power to admit that. And those are the only two ways to answer the question. Now, of course, 
Maybe a third way to answer it would be to say, well, that's impossible to exist. Why answer that question? Because there's no way the economy can slow materially without inflation also coming down. Again, this is the false belief that stagflation is impossible, or even if we have it, it's going to be transitory. So let's just pretend it can't exist. But I don't think Powell wants to say that. Powell wants to tell people that he's not even contemplating such a scenario because he thinks such a scenario is impossible. Not only is that an impossible scenario, it's actually the most likely scenario. The economy is going to slow materially as a result of not only the rate hikes, but of inflation continuing to get worse. And despite the fact that Powell didn't answer that question, I know what he is going to do. He is going to ignore the fact that inflation is still above target and Powell is going to act to try to stimulate the economy. Now, he's just going to assume that inflation is going to come down on its own based on the economic weakness, even though it hadn't already come down. That's going to be a fatal mistake, but it's one the Fed is going to make because there's no way that Powell or anybody on the FOMC is going to ignore a recession, ignore the plight of unemployed Americans, ignore all the pressure being put on them from politicians on both sides of the aisle to do something to help. And there is no way Powell is going to ignore those pleas. If he does, I mean, they're going to storm the Federal Reserve Building in Washington, D.C. I mean, it'll be another riot, like the Capitol Hill riots, probably only even worse if the Fed just not only allows a recession, but actually makes it worse by hiking interest rates into that recession. So it's not going to happen. But Powell is never going to admit that that's never going to happen. In fact, he's never even going to acknowledge the possibility that it's going to happen. And that's exactly why he sidestepped that question. And following up on those hawkish, scary comments by Powell on Thursday, you had FOMC member Loretta Mester. She was interviewed on CNBC later today. And I think that's probably what caused the final sell-off in the stock market was the reaction to her comments. Basically, she's not quite as aggressive as some members. I think Bullard has stated that he wants to see rates, I think, at 3% or three and a quarter. And Mester said that she wanted to see the Fed funds rate up at 2.5% by year end because according to her, 2.5% was neutral and she wanted to get to neutral as quickly as possible. And she also used the words front-loaded. She wanted to front-load these rate hikes, meaning 50 basis points on the table for May and obviously maybe more than one 50 basis point rate hike. Who knows? There may even be 75 basis point hike in there somewhere to get up to what Mester believes is neutral at two and a half percent. And she described what neutral means. She said that a neutral Fed funds rate is a rate that is neither stimulative nor restrictive. Just basically a Fed funds rate that has no impact on the economy. And she believes that rate is two and a half percent. But of course, that's the same level that the Fed picked for neutrality back when inflation was below 2%. Well, if you determine that, let's say inflation is 1.8% and you determine that neutral is two and a half, why would it still be neutral when inflation is eight and a half percent? You have to adjust neutral to the inflation rate because a neutral rate 
can't be one where real rates are negative five and a half percent because when inflation was 1.8 and neutral was 2.5, we had positive interest rates of 0.7%. And that was considered neutral. It was still positive. Well, how can minus 5.5% real be considered neutral? It's not. The level of neutrality needs to be adjusted upward given the reality of high inflation because what was a neutral interest rate with sub 2% inflation is no longer neutral with inflation above 8%. In fact, a 2.5% rate in an 8.5% inflation world is a highly stimulative interest rate. It's not even close to being neutral. That is the problem. It is impossible for the Fed to ever achieve neutrality given how high inflation is because we now have so much debt we can't afford to pay a neutral rate, let alone the restrictive rate that would actually be required to bend this inflation curve. And it's not just that the Fed has to hike rates. It has to dramatically shrink its balance sheet, something that it cannot do. Now, I did look at the most recent numbers and we got a $9 billion drop in the balance sheet last week, right? Which doesn't even come close to the, what, almost $30 billion increase in the week before, but at least we didn't go over $9 trillion. But we're still not getting any kind of significant reduction. I mean, a $9 billion drop is nothing. I mean, talk about a spit in the ocean. And it's a fraction of what they're talking about doing. And the bond market continues to get clobbered. In fact, yields on the five-year went over 3% on the week. That's the first time they've done that. And they were over 3% at one point today. But the bonds continued to get clobbered. The only reason that bonds rallied a little bit today was because the stock market was tanking. If it wasn't for this big stock market sell-off, bonds would have probably ended the week with even higher yields and lower prices, although they were negative on the week, and I'll get to that later. But given how large the budget deficits are and the need for the Fed to finance them, it's just physically impossible for the Fed to actually pursue a monetary policy that would be effective at fighting inflation. Yet everybody continues to operate under the delusion that what the Fed has proposed is going to work. But nonetheless, what Mester was proposing today was more bad news for the market. And in fact, Mester actually admitted that it was going to take several years for the Fed to bring inflation back down to 2%. That's a big admission, several years, because that means that while Americans are struggling with higher interest rates, they're going to continue to struggle with high inflation. The price increases of the past aren't going away, they're going to go up even higher because inflation is going to continue at a rate that well exceeds 2%. And by the way, one thing that Mester did not mention and that nobody mentions again but me, but if we have inflation well above 2% for several years and then the Fed gets inflation back down to 2%, that's not low enough because the Fed already decided and claimed that its mandate was for inflation to average 2% over time. Well, if we spend so many years 
way above 2%, well, we're going to have to spend many years below 2% in order to bring the average back down to 2%. Now, of course, maybe the Fed will completely jettison that concept when it's convenient to do so and say, hey, it doesn't matter how high inflation was in the past. We're just going to make sure it's 2% in the future. But I think when the Fed actually does that, even more credibility will be lost, assuming the Fed has any credibility left to lose in the first place. But I think that admission, too, that inflation is going to stay high for years scared the market because it also implies that interest rates are going to stay high or that the Fed will be unlikely to start reducing interest rates if the market or the economy goes down because it's still going to have an inflation problem on its hands. And that added to the pressure that was already on the market prior to her talking on CNBC. You know, I really thought I knew my mother until one day she told me this story about the early days of a career, something I had never heard before. And that got me wondering about how many other stories I've never heard. And that's what got me interested in StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and then preserving them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom thought-provoking questions of your choice from a vast pool of possible questions. Each unique prompt asks questions you've probably never thought of, like, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Or if you had it all to do over again, what would you do differently? You'll really enjoy reading your mom's answers to those questions. You'll discover new stories and memories. You'll learn some things about your mother you never knew. And in the process, maybe even discover some things about yourself. And after one year, StoryWorth will compile all the questions and stories, including any photos that your mom sends, into a beautiful keepsake book the whole family can share for generations. In fact, your own children might get a bigger kick by learning things about their grandmother than you did learning things about your mom. So this Mother's Day, give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 off your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash gold today. That's storyworth.com slash gold. S-T-O-R-Y-W-R-T-H dot com slash gold. And you'll save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash gold. The other big problem for the market was Netflix. And I talked about Netflix on my last podcast because I recorded that podcast on the evening of the day that Netflix reported its disappointing earnings. And I went over those earnings. And at the time I was recording the podcast in after hours trading, Netflix shares were down about 26%. Well, the carnage was even worse the following day in normal market trading. Netflix shares finished down about 36% in one day. And Netflix shares continued to lose value based on where Netflix closed on Friday. The stock's down about 70% from its high in November of last year. And in fact, after the market closed on Thursday, Bill Ackman, who's the billionaire that runs Pershing Square, he admitted that he dumped all of his Netflix holdings earlier in the day after the disappointing news came out. So he booked a $430 million loss on a position he just established about three months ago. And if you look at where Netflix was trading when Bill Ackman thought he was getting a good deal, 
it was about 40% below its record high. And so Ackman thought he was getting it 40% off. And I've talked about that on this podcast. You don't want to get fooled by these phony benchmarks just because the stock is down from its high doesn't mean it's a bargain. It's just less overpriced than it was before. And it seems even billionaires have to relearn that lesson because that's exactly what Bill Ackman did. Now, to his credit, he was willing to take a loss. He didn't decide to average down and throw good money after bad. He admitted his mistake. The problem is, why would he make such a mistake in the first place? It should have been obvious to a guy like Bill Ackman that Netflix was overpriced. The problems that Netflix is having did not just come out of left field. It was pretty clear that these problems were brutal. But Bill Ackman ignored it. And if a guy as smart as Bill Ackman could make a mistake like that, imagine the mistakes that everybody else is making. And I think that what happened to Netflix should be scaring a lot of investors who are potentially holding the next Netflix. Now, there's already a lot of stocks that are down 70%. I mean, PayPal is down 70%. Square, which now is called Block, I mean, that's down 65%. I can go on and on. There's a whole list of companies that are way down. But this was one of the FANG stocks. This is the N in FANG, right? The FANG stocks are supposed to be can't lose stocks, right? Everybody's got to own the FANG stocks. Well, nobody is making money in this FANG stock who bought it since January 1st of 2018. Because as of right now, all the gains since 2018 began in Netflix have been wiped out. And since Netflix doesn't pay any dividends, if you've owned Netflix for the last four years and four months, you have zero return. Now, there's been a lot of inflation in the last four years and four months, so you haven't even come close to keeping pace with inflation in this stock. But of course, if you bought it near the highs or at the high, you're down 70%. And if this can happen to Netflix, well, what's the next shoe that's going to drop? People need to start thinking about they're just one earnings report away from disaster. And so why wait? Why not get out now before that happens? And I think a lot more people are doing that. That's why the Netflix news is weighing so heavily on the market, particularly the tech market, which is exactly what I thought was going to happen when I first talked about the Netflix story on my last podcast. In fact, one of the high profile investors who I have predicted from the beginning is going to cut and run and recognize that he made a mistake and admit it is Paul Tudor Jones, who was the first hedge fund guy to get into Bitcoin because when he got into Bitcoin, he said he was looking for an inflation hedge. And he thought that when it came to inflation hedges, Bitcoin was the fastest horse in the race. Well, clearly, Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge because even a lot of its proponents now admit that it's a risk asset. It's not a hedge. It's not risk off like gold. It's risk on like tech stocks. Well, that's not what Paul Tudor Jones thought he was buying when he bought Bitcoin. He wanted digital gold, not some digital version of a tech stock, but that's what he owns. And at some point when the bottom drops out of Bitcoin, and right now as I'm recording Bitcoin, it's trading just below 40,000, around 39,600. But it looks like it's on the verge of a major breakdown. And I think somewhere along the way, Paul Tudor Jones is going to do exactly what Bill Ackman did with Netflix. Paul Tudor Jones is going to admit that he was wrong and dump his Bitcoin. And that is going to be a huge disaster for the Bitcoin market 
when he acknowledges that he's gone out. Just like I think that Bill Ackman's announcement was a negative for Netflix because it showed that a big investor no longer had confidence and was throwing in the towel. Well, I think Paul Tudor Jones' admission that he threw in the towel on Bitcoin is going to have an even bigger impact on Bitcoin and crypto than Ackman's impact on Netflix. But another stock that I think people should be worried about, given what just happened in Netflix, is Tesla. Because Tesla's in the news today again, and it was actually up, as was Twitter. Twitter was up on the day. It bucked the market and was up almost 4%. And the reason Twitter is up is because Elon Musk announced that he does have the financing lined up to buy Twitter. But the way he has lined up this financing is he's able to leverage his Tesla shares. I think about three quarters of his Tesla shares are going to have to be pledged as collateral for a loan. And then he'll be able to take that money that he borrows pledging his Tesla shares as collateral and use it to buy Twitter. This is very dangerous for Tesla. I mean, first of all, Tesla is vulnerable anyway to a big decline because Tesla reported their earnings yesterday and the earnings beat. And so Tesla was up. But one of these days, Tesla is going to miss and it's sayonara Tesla. It's going to get killed just like Netflix got killed. And if you think about the similarities between the two companies, Netflix was a pioneer in streaming. It got to the market early, got a big lead, started making a bunch of money, getting a lot of subscribers. The market rewarded Netflix with a sky-high valuation. So everybody was getting rich off of Netflix. And like capitalism does, those riches attracted new entrants. Other people wanted to strike it rich. After all, if Netflix can do it, other people can do it. So Disney, Paramount, NBC, Amazon, Hulu. I mean, there's all these streaming services that wanted to emulate Netflix's success. They wanted a piece of Netflix action, and they did. And initially, all these new entrants were rewarded. I mean, look what happened to Disney stock as a result of Disney Plus. Of course, Disney stock is crashing now. I mean, it made a new 52-week low today. Disney's now down about 38% from its 52-week high. But the problem for all these streaming companies that are trying to compete for the same customers is the customers don't have enough money. They can't afford to subscribe to all these services. So they're cutting back. They're sharing passwords with their friends. They're subscribing for a month and then they're canceling and then they're subscribing to another one. So they are cannibalizing this market. There is not enough for all these companies to feed on. And now they're eating each other and the earnings are going to suffer. And so Netflix share price has collapsed. Well, the same thing is going to happen with Tesla. Tesla was the first mover in electric cars. They showed that there was a big demand for these electric cars, started making money, getting a lot of sales. Tesla stock went into the stratosphere. Investors in Tesla stock got rewarded. Well, now executives of other automobile companies were looking at the market cap of Tesla because they were selling electric cars and it sent the signal, hey, the public wants electric cars. So now Mercedes, BMW, Toyota, General Motors, I mean, all these car companies all around the world, now they start 
focusing on hybrids, all electric vehicles. You have new electric vehicle companies that have now started that didn't even exist a few years ago. So now you have all this competition in electric cars, just like you have all this competition in streaming. And at some point it's gonna catch up with Tesla and they're gonna have bad numbers and the stock's gonna crash. But what's gonna exacerbate that crash and a reason that nobody should own Tesla if Elon Musk actually buys Twitter and pays for it by margining his Tesla shares. Because if you have a guy like Elon Musk, the biggest shareholder in Tesla, who has a loan against his Tesla stock, and that stock is collateral, if Tesla stock makes a big move down, those Tesla shares are gonna automatically be sold into the market. Imagine what's gonna happen if Tesla stock is down 50, 60, 70%, and then, after that big decline, Elon Musk's huge stake is going to be sold, force margin call sale into the market. First of all, in order to sell such a big block, you're going to have to find these buyers and they're not going to buy at the market. They're going to want a huge discount to the market to take that stock. So I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Tesla if I knew Elon Musk had a big margin loan against his stake because eventually that loan is gonna be called, the stock is gonna drop enough to trigger a forced sale, and then Katie bar the door, this thing is gonna collapse. And of course, you're not gonna to wanna to own that stock when that happens, or even after that happens, so you might as well get out now. But I think Elon Musk is smart enough to know that he doesn't wanna put himself into a position where he risks financial ruin. He could actually go bankrupt if he was forced to sell all of his Tesla stock. And remember, he's buying Twitter. He could be losing a bunch of money on Twitter too. He's not gonna be able to just sell that. It's gonna be a private company that he's gonna own. So I don't think Elon Musk wants to jeopardize his position. He's already got all the money he'll ever need. Why would he wanna take so much risk he doesn't have to, and he's not going to do it. He is just playing this game. He is trying to continue to pretend that he wants to buy Twitter. And so he's going through the motions. He's lining up financing so he can continue to fool the market into believing that he's serious about buying Twitter so the price will stay high long enough for him to dump his Twitter and walk away with a handsome profit. And my advice to anybody who owns this stock is just to sell now and don't be greedy. Just be glad that Elon Musk has done you a favor by faking a desire to buy Twitter because if it wasn't for that, the price of Twitter would be a lot lower now. Not just lower than it was when he made his offer, but a lot lower because the market has gone down. Stocks like Twitter are getting beaten up and the only reason Twitter has been spared a beating is because it's been saved by Elon Musk. So that's a gift horse. And again, I talk about this on the podcast. You get a gift horse. Don't look it in the mouth. You've got a gift horse opportunity to sell Twitter. Take advantage of it. But rather than talking about individual stocks, let's take a look at what happened in the overall market, beginning with the bond market. Because again, the bond market is the key to the stock market and yields continued to rise throughout the week only getting a little bit of relief today with the spectacular declines in the stock market. But the yield on the five-year U.S. Treasury moved from 2.786 last Friday to 2.949 
this Friday. And as I said earlier, briefly intraday and yesterday, the five-year was yielding better than 3%. And in fact, the five-year is once again, the highest yield on the curve. The yield on five-year treasuries is higher than 10-year treasuries. It's even higher than 30-year treasuries. And that's because the markets are convinced that the Fed is going to cause a recession with its rate hikes, which they're right, that is going to happen. But the markets are wrong in their belief that that recession is going to bring inflation back down and that inflation is going to once again average under 2% for the next 30 years. The markets are completely wrong. What the markets don't seem to understand is that we have never gone into a recession where inflation was above target. Every prior recession since the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed was able to justify 0% interest rates, quantitative easing, because inflation was still below target. And so they can get away with creating more inflation when they claimed we didn't have enough. But when we enter this recession, inflation is going to be way above target. So there is no logical way that the Fed can rationalize these policies with inflation so high. And so this really is different. We're not going to return to these low interest rates. Even if we go into recession, that's not going to matter. Even if the Fed tries to return to 0% interest rates in QE, it's not going to bring inflation down. And if inflation is not going to come down, then these long-term bond yields can't come down either. The bond market completely has that wrong. In fact, one of the stories that was going around in the news this week was that yields turned positive on the 10-year, real yields. Because if you look at the tip break-evens, the expectation for inflation over the next 10 years is 2.9%. And that's because the market expects inflation to go back down below 2% to average down the high inflation we have now so that the average is 29 But briefly, you could get a yield on a 10-year that was higher than 2.9. And so because the nominal yield on the 10-year exceeded what investors expect inflation to average over those 10 years, you got all these news stories about how we finally have positive real interest rates. Well, we didn't have positive real interest rates. Only if bond investors are correct in their anticipation that inflation is going to fall in the future. But what if they're wrong? What if inflation doesn't fall? What if inflation stays where it is? What if inflation goes up? We still have negative real interest rates. If you simply look at the trailing inflation rate and you compare the current interest rate, we're not even close to positive. We're still like negative five and a half. We've got eight and a half percent inflation and we've got three percent yields. That's minus 5.5. That's not a positive rate. It's only positive if you believe the fantasy of bond investors that the Fed's going to succeed. And again, this fantasy is based on the fact that the Fed still has credibility. Investors still believe Bernanke when he says the Fed is serious about fighting inflation and they're going to do whatever it takes. It's just that these bond investors don't realize that if the Fed did whatever it took, the markets would implode. We'd have a financial crisis worse than 2008, which is why they're not going to do whatever it takes. They're going to surrender. Inflation is going to win the fight and bond investors are going to lose because they are accepting interest rates that do not reflect the reality of how high inflation actually is going to be. 
They just reflect this fantasy of a world where the Fed is able to restore sub 2% inflation, even though we're never going back to that world. That world was like the fantasy. That was the aberration. Those years of sub 2% inflation, they're never coming back. I mean, they never really existed. They only existed because of the magic of the CPI. But even the CPI's magic is not big enough to make all this inflation disappear. We're still going to be dealing with it, much higher rates of inflation. And so interest rates are nowhere close to being positive. And I don't know that they're going to get positive at any point over the next 10 years, over the life of these treasuries. I just don't see how the Fed is ever going to be able to get interest rates above the actual inflation rate or even the inflation rate that the government pretends with the CPI. I don't see how they're going to be able to do that given the enormity of the debt that we have thanks to the policy mistakes of the past. In fact, so many people now seem to be worried that the Fed is going to make a mistake, right? They're going to tighten too much and make a mistake. They've already made the mistake. It's not about the Fed might make a mistake. They've already made nothing but mistakes. The Fed has never done anything right. And because they made so many mistakes in the past, they've already doomed us in the future. It's not about the mistakes they may make. It's about the mistakes they already made. And because they made so many mistakes in the past, I expect them to make even bigger mistakes in the future. And the mistake they're going to make in the future is not tightening too much, but not tightening enough, bowing down to the political pressure once the economy really starts to tank and the markets are deep in bear market territory. When the Fed takes its foot off the brake and slams it back on the gas, that's when the economy is going over a cliff because inflation is going to run out of control. But let me move from the bond market over to the stock market, which extended its declines. The Dow on Friday dropped by 2.8% in one day. It's now down 8.5% from its high. The S&P was down 2.77% on Friday. It's now off 11.4% from its high. Russell 2000 down 2.5% on Friday and now down 21%. So that is back in bear market territory. That's exactly what I predicted would happen this week on my podcast last week. Same thing with the NASDAQ composite was down 2.85% on the week. It's now back down 20.4% from its high. So we're in bear market territory. Monday is not looking good. I mean, I keep talking about the prospects of a crash being greater and greater, and they're greater now than they were the last time I recorded a podcast. In fact, two podcasts ago, the title of the podcast had to do with the probability of a crash going up, and it continues to go up. I would be sweating bullets if I was long a bunch of U.S. tech stocks over the weekend wondering what might happen on Monday. The Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Trust actually held up pretty good on the day. It was only down 1.65% but it is now back down 67% from its peak. In fact, the close on Friday was the second lowest close ever, and it's only maybe a quarter of a percent above the lowest close. So I think that by Monday, we're going to be making a new record low in the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation Fund. Closely tracking, ARK is Bitcoin, GBTC, and you know, ARK actually owns GBTC. That's one of the securities in their portfolio. But the Bitcoin Investment Trust was down 4.4% on Friday, now down 52% from its high. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Anthony Scaramucci and the Skybridge funds, because I talked about this when Scaramucci, and I'm friendly with him, 
Uh, he used to invite me to his SALT conferences. In fact, I did a debate there with Barry Siebert on Bitcoin. And in fact, about seven months ago, I did an Intelligence Square debate with Scaramucci. And I pointed out, I don't know if I pointed out on that debate, I probably did. I pointed out on this podcast that I believe that his entrance into the crypto space was going to mark the top of the market, that he was kind of the last person to arrive late to the party and that the people that were following his lead and investing in all these Skybridge products, they were the bag holders. They were buying in at the peak of a mania. And it looks like that that prediction was right. Because if you look at the four Skybridge digital asset trusts, these are trusts that were launched with Claymore Securities. And basically the trusts are a static portfolio and they raise a bunch of money and then you buy this portfolio. And then they don't manage the portfolio. It's just static once you put the money in. And he's done four of them. The first one is down 28.2% from its starting price. All the funds start at $10. So this one is down 28.2%. And all four of these funds closed Friday at record lows. So everybody who is in these funds is down. Now, initially, investors in the first fund were ahead. In fact, they were ahead by 53.2% at the highs. And I think those big gains early on is what allowed Scaramucci to roll out the second one. The second one is now down 37.5% from its selling price of $10. But even the investors in that fund initially had a 30% gain. So as Scaramucci was deploying this money into these digital stocks, stocks that were going to benefit from crypto and Bitcoin and blockchain, as all that money was coming in, it was helping to push up the price. So Scaramucci himself was bidding up the prices of the stocks he was buying, which was attracting more money into his funds. And so the success of one and two allowed him to roll out number three. Now, the people who bought into number three on Friday, that trust is now down 59.4%. The people in number three are getting slaughtered. And in fact, that trust went straight down. After it was initially sold at $10 a share, it never actually traded $10 a share. It went straight down from the opening price. The same thing happened with number four. Now, when they launched number four, number three was down a little bit, but there were still profits in number one and number two. And so I suppose it was still possible to sucker people in for the fourth fund. And maybe it was initially sold, hey, let's buy the dip. The third one is down a little bit. You've got this great opportunity now to get in on number four. So they launched number four. And now number four, which never even saw an up day above its $10 opening price, now investors in number four are down 39%. Again, all four all-time lows on Friday, and I think pretty much that's it. There's not going to be a number five. Given how much money investors have already lost in these trusts, I don't think there's an appetite to throw even more good money after bad. I'd say that this is it. No more Claymore trusts. And the losses are just getting started. These trusts are going a lot lower because these stocks are still dramatically overpriced. In fact, Skybridge also launched a crypto ETF. That symbol is CRPT. That thing was down 10% this week, and it's already down 61% from its high in November of last year. 
and it's going a lot lower. In fact, there's another ETF, the Valkyrie Bitcoin Miners ETF. That symbol is WGMI. That was also down 10% on the week. It's down 38% from its high, which was two months ago, because this ETF wasn't even launched until February, and it's already off by 38% from its high. So all of these high-flying stocks, whether they were crypto-related, meme stocks, the stay-at-home favorites of the COVID era, the FANG stocks, all this speculative mania is coming to an end. 2021 was peak insanity caused by the most reckless of all monetary policies by the Fed, which created the mother of all inflations. And now the Fed wants to try to put this genie back in the bottle. It doesn't want to accept any responsibility for having allowed the genie out of the bottle. It wants to blame it all on Putin. It wants to blame it all on COVID. But it thinks it's a simple task to undo the damage. All they got to do is jack rates back up to two and a half, three percent get there quickly. And because we have such a great, strong economy with a super hot labor market, the Fed can do today what it never could do in the past because the economy now is so much stronger than it was in the past. Well, it's not stronger. It's just a bigger bubble, except the Fed doesn't understand that. In fact, probably the only thing that's bigger than this bubble are the egos of the FOMC members and how clueless they are about economic reality. I would say that the statements that Powell is making today and other FOMC board members, these statements are even more ridiculous than the ones they were making back in 2007 when they said there was no problem in the mortgage market, there wasn't a housing bubble, and then after it popped, claiming that it was all contained to subprime and there was nothing to worry about. And then, of course, the more recent statements about inflation being transitory, the ones they're making now about their ability to raise interest rates and successfully fight inflation without hurting the economy because the economy is super strong and can withstand higher interest rates. These are the most ridiculous comments yet. And the Fed is going to look even more foolish for having made those comments than the other comments that it already looks foolish for having made. And I think, you know, it's three strikes you're out. Strike one, subprime, contain. Strike two, inflation is transitory. Strike three, We can raise interest rates. The economy is strong enough to withstand it. I think all of the Fed's credibility is going to be lost when that mistake is revealed. And of course, when the Fed ultimately does what I said it's going to do, and that is reverse course and provide the answer to the question that Powell refused to answer at that IMF roundtable and show that when the going gets tough on the economy, that's when the Fed gives up its pretend inflation fight and inflation wins basically by default because the Fed throws in the towel and with that towel will go the entirety of the Fed's reputation and then the markets will start to price in a more realistic forward view of inflation rather than the fantasy view that is currently baked into the break-even cake and that's it because when reality hits the bond market it's going to hit the currency markets it's going to hit the gold market. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned the gold market on this podcast. Gold sold off on Friday 
down just under 20 bucks at 1932. It was down about five or six dollars yesterday, but overall, gold only finished the week about four or five dollars lower, if that. It was the mining stocks that took it on the chin. The GDX was down 3.67% on the week, but it was down 9% in the final two days of the week. In fact, on Thursday, when gold was only down about a third of a percent, the gold stocks were down 5% and then continued that decline today. So that 9% drop in two days wiped out some solid gains that we had Monday through Wednesday that we had earlier in the week. But again, I think that the gold traders are overreacting to the Fed's tough talk on hiking rates and fighting inflation because they still don't get that the Fed is not going to win this fight, that inflation is going to win, the Fed's going to lose. The same mistake that bond investors are making, gold stock investors are making. And by the way, I like the action. I'm not afraid. These gold stocks are climbing a wall of worry. They're going up. They're just not going straight up. And at the slightest sign of trouble, the weak hands throw their cards away. This is a very healthy bull market. It's still early days. That's why it's having so much trouble. That's why it's two steps forward, one step back. And that's why you have these sharp sell-offs instead of sharp rallies, because that's the type of action that you see at the end of a bull market, not the beginning. Everything that's happening in the gold market and the gold stock market is consistent with the birth of a bull market. Everything that happened in the crypto market and with crypto-related stocks signals the death of a bull market. In fact, the end of a mania. That's why people still have an opportunity to salvage what's left of their crypto portfolio and any stocks related to blockchain, Bitcoin. By the way, I notice now there are over 19,000 altcoins. This is the first time we've had a 19 handle for how many thousands of altcoins there are. Soon we'll have 20,000. The supply is exploding Pretty soon the demand is going to completely implode. Before that happens, you can sell anything related to fool's gold and buy equities related to real gold. 